Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Well, Mark Callan, thank you for joining us today. And if you wouldn't mind, please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, I'm Mark Cowan. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Kruger Cowan Limited, a company founded just over a quarter of 25 years ago. It's a quarter of a century. It's quite surprising, isn't it? Yes. I'm here to chat to you about whatever it is we're going to chat about. And what is Kruger Cowan? Kruger Cowan is a talent management agency. We represent iconic people all over the world. And by iconic, I worry these days about the sort of misnomination of celebrity. Celebrity was a celebritization of people who'd excelled at stuff originally. Now it just means anybody who's actually seen in the public eye. So we're not a celebrity management company. We are an iconic talent management company. The people we represent are the best of the breed. They are iconic in their field. It could be Elle McPherson, iconic as a model. Bob Geldof, iconic for leadership. Richard Branson, iconic for entrepreneurialism. Or it could be Ernie the Milkman, the iconic leader of the milking people, because he's iconic as what he does. So it's, that's, that's the definition of who represents their iconic. That's an interesting distinction. I can see the importance of making one. Do you think one may be metric for success or metric for the designation of being an icon is peer review? How do you determine what is an icon or who is an icon? I think it actually, that's the great thing about it, where a celebrity just means you're famous, unfortunately, these days. Iconic means absolutely peer representation, total success in your field, dominance in your field, international recognition in your field. You could say that somebody like Churchill was an iconic politician. He certainly wasn't a celebrity, but he was iconic. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So what led to you wanting to start an iconic talent management company? Now, that's a really interesting question that could actually take up the rest of this call. What actually happened was, I've been involved all of my life. As you said to me earlier, we spoke about my training in life as a graphic designer. Hmm. I went to art college and I studied graphic design. The thing is, I actually realized at a very early age, there were much better graphic designers around than me, but I was really good at understanding what they needed to do. So I was actually very good at managing them. So I sort of moved without knowing it into a management role in my very, very early life. And I stayed in the advertising industry for, oh God, many, many years. And I really get branding. Branding to me is everything. It's it's like the holy grail. It has to be respected. It has to be developed. It has to be enhanced. It has to be, you know, it's, it's your Bible of communication, the whole thing about branding. And each of the talents I represent today is a brand. Brand, Bob Geldof's a brand. They're all brands. You know, that's how it works. So what actually happened was I'd been living in South Africa for a great number of years. I had an advertising agency there. I decided to get out of it, and I opened a wildlife project in the northwestern area of South Africa. And then got a bit sort of difficult there, to say the least. And my wife, who is South African, desperately wanted us to move to England. I desperately wanted to stay in the bush and be with my wildlife, to be honest. Hmm. But she thought it was a great idea we should move to England. So I did. And I thought, actually, since it's nice and secure for my children, one was two, the other one was six. Why not come back and bring them up in a nice, secure place? The only problem is, 
I'd got 20 years experience in South Africa. I was unbelievably well connected in every aspect of business I needed to be connected in. And coming back to England was rather like coming straight out of university. I hadn't lived in England for over 20 years. I had no bank account. I had nothing in England at all. So, you know, lending in England is not the easiest thing in the world to just suddenly get on your feet and start doing stuff. Rather oddly, my brother-in-law is the world affairs editor of the BBC, hmm. John Simpson. Okay. And my wife started actually helping him with all of his stuff outside of the BBC. That was sort of like his literary stuff and his speaking stuff and things. And I was talking to her about what she was doing with John. And I realized all the people who were actually putting him out for bookings, all the speaker bureaus, whatever, they hadn't got a clue as to what his actual brand values were. Mm. They were sending him to events which made no sense to him and actually made no sense to their customer. So not necessarily very well matched. So I said to my wife, well, why don't we do this properly? Why don't we take over John's management and define the brand and make sure these people only actually put him forward for things which are correct and in sync with that brand? And this was like revelationary. Suddenly John's happy. He's getting these amazing bookings. They're all 100% on brand. And for some stupid reason... He went and told those of his other friends at the BBC what we'd done for him. And within minutes, we suddenly had Fergal Keane and John Sargent and John Humphreys and you name it, all wanting to come to us so we could do the same for them. Hmm. That was sort of how it started. I've run mega businesses in my life. I've created businesses from nothing. So many startups. I found crowdfunding. I've done everything. I've written three, 400-page strategic documents to investors and things. And some of them have worked, some of them haven't. This business was done with no forethought whatsoever, no plan whatsoever, other than getting my brother-in-law sorted out into what he was supposed to be doing. And since that, it's grown into a business over 25 years where we represent more than 300 people, operate internationally, we deal with more than 60 countries placing people for the work that we do with them. And all of that because John Simpson was misrepresented in the first place. So that's not really a great strategic plan, but it certainly came out right at the end. What does that mean for someone like you who started so many successful companies and strategized and wrote these almost like novels on strategy that your most successful endeavor, it would seem, happened almost by chance? the funny thing about it is it happened as a result of my knowledge of branding, which took a long time to gain. Without that, it wouldn't have happened. So if I'd actually really thought about it and I understood the market we ended up in, you could have developed it in the way that it could have been developed. It just happened on this occasion. It was just so obvious that something was going wrong and I had the tools to fix it. But the other one which was really peculiar for us was when Bob Geldof joined us because we had a very strange problem with him because he had an incredibly high profile as a loudmouth musician and also for demanding people support his philanthropic work. So we had to actually completely rebrand him into what he truly is, which is a global leader. Anybody who can get 1.6 billion people to follow them on a mission is a leader, whether he accepts it or not. We had to completely realign him in a different branding mission for the corporate market to understand he's not standing there saying, give me your money, I need to feed Africa. 
So Bob's whole thing was that he is an incredible leader. He has the ability to see through all the rubbish, to absolutely laser focus on something. Then he, as an Irishman, he has an amazing gift of speech mm. where he can translate his vision eloquently into a way which he can share with others so that he can get them to join him on that that he wants to do. Hell, that's leadership. That was how we had to realign him compared to the loud Irishman that people thought he was. It was worse than actually starting off with nothing. We had to change his whole image. Right. But his image was wrong. People just misunderstood him. Okay. It seems like there could be a trend here where you're able to see a larger pattern or see opportunity and things that are otherwise glossed over and kind of, I don't know if course correct is the right term, but basically like a captain of the ship lead towards a new goal. Leading now or managing rather hundreds of iconic leaders or talent around the world. I imagine you have to do that in different ways and different measures. How challenging is that? Does each one make the next one easier or more difficult? You know, I cannot think of a more challenging job ever that I've considered in my life than that which we do at the moment. I used to work for Philips as their communications director. Okay. I was in the consumer electronics division. I had 146 products within my portfolio. The great thing about it was when I was selling the Philips TV, the next day when I went to the office, the Philips TV still knew it was a Philips TV. With the products I represent now, 300 people, they have a change of mind. They decide that that's not what they want to do after all, or they've had a leaning to do this, or had I actually thought about that. It's a very, very challenging thing to try and do. I'm sure. What are some of your highlights? I mean, 25 years is a long time to pull from, but just maybe something top of mind you'd like to share? My highlight was that it was something that was rather odd. Geldof and I were supposed to do a corporate keynote in Turkey earlier in the year. And unfortunately, it got postponed because of that massive earthquake that happened in Turkey. Yeah. And I felt really bad for the people there. I wanted to try and just do something to help a little bit. And they postponed our event. And I said to them, look, why don't we try and raise a bit of money to help the guys there? I'll get Geldof to sign you a guitar. And as it happens, I have a first edition of his book in Turkish that I can get him to sign for you to also stick on auction. Nice. They said, well, that'd be really nice. So I sent them those things. And I thought they'd raise a a few thousand dollars. They went to the local mayor and told them we'd done that. The mayor got behind it and they raised nearly $2.5 million from everybody else contributing, supporting and everything. That to me was something that was absolutely fabulous that I was part of doing that helped an awful lot of people far greater than I ever expected. And when I look at what Bob did for Africa, this pales into complete insignificance, but what an unbelievable thing that he was able to achieve. Yet he is so unbelievably humble about it. Yeah, that's nice. It's kind of like a double-sided victory where you at once have the joy of helping others, but then also an appreciation for those you partner with. Yeah. I think the nice thing about us managing people is that we connect with them. I, I really hate the word holistic, but we understand our clients really well. And so we can see opportunities where things can overlap, where we can do things to make things work. That's really important. Okay. Yeah, I can see that as well. What's on the horizon for you? Is there anything that you haven't done yet in your company that you're looking to do or a country that you haven't penetrated that you're looking to find some iconic talent within? There's a difference between the company perspective and my own sort of perspective. From a company perspective, 
we grew enormously into all areas of representation. And we've decided what we're going to do is actually hone that down instead back into a complete management focus where we will utilize services of others to provide some of the services which we had done. I realized that during COVID, we'd spread ourselves out into many areas, including having our own speaker bureau. The reality is our focus has to be on managing the talent and working with the best speaker bureaus for them not necessarily providing our own solution. So we're going to focus on that quite a lot. Talent comes from all over the world. We're predominantly English-speaking, so a lot of the talent is English. We have some Chinese people on our books, but that will continue to grow. Although we want to keep it under manageable numbers, the critical thing for us is we have to 100% understand our product, mm-hmm. 100%. So it's no good just lining up a whole load of names like a speaker bureau does. We have to actually know that Elle will do this. She won't do that. This is on brand. That's off brand. Without even speaking to her, we got to know those things inside out. We mustn't take on more talent than we can actually manage on a pretty much a one-to-one basis. Okay. Personally, I've traveled pre-COVID. I was traveling probably 200 days a year. Wow. I have been to, I think, already something like 103 countries. I think that's on my list. It'll be really nice to get some events in countries I haven't been to yet. That'll be a fun thing to do. And I've got a number of clients who are with me on that. I've got Terry and Rebecca Cruz who are really keen to go and see Japan. I've got Bob who wants to go to Uruguay. So we're looking around for some interesting bits. Yeah, that sounds exciting. So without giving away any kind of trade secrets or special sauce ingredients, could you talk at all about how you get to know your talent? Because it seems like that's kind of the crux of this whole thing. It's only product awareness. It's no different. If you're working in the local store, you've got to know what products you're selling. If you're selling that TV to that lady, you've got to know what its features and its benefits are versus its competition. And it's exactly the same for us. All of the people on our books, whether they like it or not, are products. And that product has features and benefits and a life cycle and a pricing point. And those things need to be understood. Hmm. And the features pushed and the benefits pushed. And sometimes we work to extend the product life cycle because it's getting a bit tired. It's disappeared off the radar. So we need to do a bit of a product reinvention. That means reestablishing it. Maybe it's time to launch a new book. Maybe it's time to do a new TV appearance. Maybe it's time for something else. It's to keep the product current. As soon as the product goes off the boil, it's off the radar. We're bombarded so much with information all the time now, it's worse than ever. So to keep top of awareness in people's minds is really difficult. It's understanding a product. There's nothing worse than a salesman trying to sell you a product he doesn't know about. Yeah, I believe that. I'd like to talk a little bit about your role as a leader. You've been a leader for, seems like your whole life. What is it like being a leader in different companies? Does your experience with one carry over to the other, or does it actually get in the way where you have to start again? I think it depends a great deal on the organization. Some are willing to allow you to use those attributes immediately. Others want you to prove yourself in their own sort of fields. Right. I think for people who join me, no matter how strong they were in their previous role, inevitably there's a three to six month overlap before they actually really do start to understand how they can genuinely apply their skill sets to the business that they've then found themselves in. Mm -hmm. But I think the important thing about leadership 
I don't know if this is something that you're sort of born with or you're not. I look at a lot of the people I represent and I think, what put them in that position? And inevitably, somehow or another, something didn't quite fit in their life earlier. You'd know the sort of history of L. Bob Geldof. His mother died when he was five. His father was traveling salesman. He had to bring himself up. There's circumstances that affect young people that give them leadership qualities, where I think the opposite side is they collapse and then they have to be you know, looked after by somebody else. In my own instance, I was never particularly close to my parents. My father traveled a lot. My mother wasn't particularly interested in being a mother, so I had to look after myself and I did what I did with my education, etc. But I've always had the ability to visualize something and communicate it in a way which others can understand and can follow and I can measure and, if necessary, redirect it as situations change. I joined the Army Cadet Force when I was 11 years old. Wow. By 12 years old, I was a corporal. By 13 years old, I was a sergeant. I like working with people. I like developing people. I really like mentoring people. And that, to me, is something catastrophic that's happened as a result of COVID with this entire situation of so many people. I don't know what it's like over there, but in the UK, there's a huge, huge, huge number of people who still want to work from home post-COVID. And there's a lot of young people who feel that they can actually go into their first job working from home. Right. But unfortunately, that's not really true. If there's certain functions of things which when developed within a company, that can work. But there's others in terms of young people. We've mentored a lot of young people. They need to be in the office. They need to be with people. They need to be exposed to different areas of the business. They need to sort of like shadow the person that they're working with to learn those things. They can't do that parked off at home, joining a team meeting once or twice a day. It doesn't, just doesn't work. There has to be that integration into the team. That for me is very sad because I think that's part of the responsibility of being a leader is to bring about change and help and support for other younger people moving in. And I also listen to them. I'm now, I don't know, I'm 66. I understand that there's been many changes in technology and social media and all sorts of things. And I like listening to young people because I'm never too old to learn myself. Sure. Going back a little bit, when you talked about some of the unpleasant experiences that leaders go through and the way that they react, it seems almost like a catalyst where they then have this outsized impact on other people's lives. So although you might not wish it on others, it seems to be such an important part of the leadership journey, of the hero's journey, if you will. Absolutely, I think it is. I don't see myself as a leader, but when I talk to others and I listen to things about business. And of course I am. I run a business. I employ people. I make things happen. I do the same thing for the 300 clients under my control. I create a situation which leads for them. Mm. And in many instances, we might end up arguing about stuff, but it sort of ends up going pretty much where I thought it should. There are the pitfalls. There's obviously the other side of it where things go wrong and then you're responsible and you have to accept that responsibility. I had the peculiar experience of meeting George W. Bush, okay. which was a very odd experience. Geldof and I were in America and Geldof was supposed to go to the West Wing to get some stuff from Josh Bolton, Bush's chief of staff. Okay. And at that stage, it was the last few days of George 
being in office. And George had made it really clear to Bob that there was like no way in this world was he going to see George W. that day. We got to the White House. We go in and we're sitting down. Josh has told us to go and sit down and walk these things. The next thing he comes over and says, oh, the boss would like to see you. Oh, right, Bob, off you go. And he said, no, no, both of you. Oh, shit, I'm off too. So there we go. We go tracing through to George's office, the Oval Office. First thing that strikes me is he's much bigger than I expected. For some reason, I didn't think he was so tall. And then Josh says to us, you know, well, like, we've probably got 10 minutes for him because heads of state maximum they get is 15 minutes and he's busy and he's launching the tarp thing today. They're waiting for him in the Rose Garden. So it's going to be quick. We're with him for an hour and 15 minutes. Wow. He's talking to us about 9-11. He's talking to us about the floods. Where were they? Down in the south there. Louisiana? New Orleans? Louisiana, yeah. No, yeah, it was... New Orleans? New Orleans, yeah. And I'm sort of listening to all this stuff. And as you sort of start to realize that he took the fall on all those things that went wrong. But the reality is he had 20 advisors who were actually giving him the solutions to what needed to be done. And never, ever, ever did he turn around and blame any of them for misinformation or making the wrong choice. He took the fault. And I thought, no, that's quite special. Yeah. Everybody else would be saying, well, it wasn't me, Josh Bolton said or whatever. Yeah, I probably would have. Yeah, I would have done for sure. But he didn't do that. He just recognized that. And the amazing thing is he was probably the best president ever of the United States in terms of Africa. Okay. He did so much for aid in Africa. His daughter, Chelsea, was very involved in projects there. And so he actually understood it. He did some fantastic stuff. Geldof actually traveled around on Air Force One with him around Africa. And the weird thing about it is you say, but George, you know, all the shit's falling on your head from all over the place. Why don't you say, but look how much good I did in Africa? And he says, yeah, nobody cares. They'd be more interested in why I didn't repaint the Brooklyn Bridge hmm. than why I actually gave 10,000 mosquito nets to children in Uganda. And it's, it's true. It's admirable, but it's almost sad in a way because nobody hears about that. They don't. But the thing is, so many people don't care. They're interested in their own interests. You know, Cher's a client of mine and a great friend of mine. And we started a charity together working on saving abused wildlife in zoos and things. And we've done a pretty good job. But you can't believe the reaction we get from people on social media. When we post we need to raise $25,000 to save two lions that are dying in an abandoned zoo in Ukraine, the trolls that immediately post, oh, why doesn't Cher pay it? She's got millions. It's like, well, hang on. Yeah, well, we did do that. We've already been through that ourselves. But now we need some public help to try and make this go. People just don't really care anymore. People keep talking to us about when we're going to do another live aid. The reality is, Bob and I don't think that would work. Something has changed. The dynamic has changed. When we now ask people to do something for Ukraine, the best we can get is a 15-second video of them saying, oh, my heart and soul's really with the people of Ukraine. Yeah, okay, Live Aid, you jumped on a plane, you flew to England at your own cost, you performed at Live Aid, and we actually made a lot of noise about it and raised a hell of a lot of money. Now it's I'll do your 15-second video. The metrics changed remarkably. When do you think that happened? Did it happen all at once, or has it been a gradual shift? And what was the duration, like the last 20 years, 30 years? I'm not sure what the tipping point was, but I think a lot of it's got to do with electronic media. Okay. When we did Live 8 in 2005, hmm. 
which was the, we didn't want money. We wanted pressure on the G8 countries, presidents to sign the deal to change things with unfair trade, et cetera, in Africa. We got amazing support for that. We ran it in eight different countries, the G8 countries, plus South Africa. And the support was incredible. And so much so that many of the things we asked for was done. $42 billion of unjust debt was dropped. Wow. 4.5 million children went to school the next day for the first time in their lives. The statistics are quite remarkable. Yeah. But something's post-2005 happened. And I think there's something weird. We were talking earlier about celebritization. There's a thing now where people instantly become famous as a result of all the X factors and pop idols and Britain's got talent, America's got talent, or actually in many cases they don't. (laughs) And what happens is a person straight off the street instantly becomes mega famous And they don't know what they're supposed to be. They don't understand the responsibilities and things that goes with normally what that fame would have built up from on a standard foundation had they come the route of 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's like they won the lottery. Suddenly they're mega. Yesterday nobody knew who they were. Now they can't actually get out of their car without people mobbing them. It's a different type of person who we're working with now. I know for a fact now if we rang up Sting and Bono or whatever, We'd instantly get the support we did 40 years ago. Things have changed. There's a new dynamic, and I think the dynamic is people think it's real when they're looking at it on social media, and it's not the same as it was when you actually went and did something physical. The world's got a bit mad, I think. (laughs) Seems that way. Well, I'd like to make a pivot and talk about your experience with auto racing. That came as a bit of a surprise to me. How long have you been, like, what got you into racing? How long have you been doing it? What do you like about it? I think that whole thing sort of hinges on this leadership sort of thing in your head. You want to be at the front. You want to be taking charge. You want to be in control. And so motor racing, that sort of ticks all those boxes fairly quickly. No pun intended. Yeah. The only slight problem with that is everybody else on the grid feels exactly the same <laughs> way. There's like so much testosterone, you could probably reignite the entire planet. <laughs> I got into rather late. It's actually quite, a, it's actually really quite a weird story. I've always enjoyed sports cars. I've had sports cars like all of my life. And I've always enjoyed driving too fast and with fairly serious disregard in some instances for maybe some of the laws of the land. I like you already. Yeah. But there were a few things that started to go wrong. The roads started to get really busy, Mm. and then they started sticking cameras everywhere and all sorts of things, and it got a bit weird. But a really bizarre thing happened. My wife and I were at Joe Walsh's wedding in LA, and my wife got really bad food poisoning. So Joe had a three-day wedding, and Gina missed the whole thing. Gina is Kruger. She's the other half of the founders of our business. She was in the hotel, and I was at the party the whole time. Mm. And... I felt really bad for her. So like the day she was feeling better after the wedding, I found a lovely little car dealership across the road from the hotel that rented exotic cars. So I thought, I know, I'll hire an exotic car and take her up the coast and go up to Santa Barbara and go and have some lunch there. So I hired this Porsche and I took her up there. We had such a nice time. I actually really enjoyed the car. I went back to England and I bought one. And then they gave me membership of the Porsche Club. Then they sent me things about going and doing track days. And, yeah, track days are sort of like fairly serious fun because you can go and drive on a racetrack and not worry about all the rules and regulations and, and have some fun and get to actually understand what the car can really do as opposed to just being a nice car to own. 
Right. And that then progressed because I started becoming, track days aren't supposed to be competitive, but I was becoming very competitive and I wanted to be doing a faster track time that you're not supposed to be timing than mm. other people. And at that point, Porsche decided it might be better for me if I took up racing rather than intimidating people on track days. <laughs> so they suggested I should start doing what was then the Porsche, was it Porsche GT Cup? So it was racing 997 Porsche Cup cars, which was hugely competitive. Okay. And so I bought a 997 Cup car. These are proper, proper flat out race cars. They've mm. never been on the road. They are built and designed purely as a race car, mm-hmm. from which many Porsches then developed later. So I raced in that for a number of years. Then I sort of progressed and I started racing in Porsche Carrera Cup, mm. which is ridiculously fast, the fastest single make race in the world. Oh. And I was enjoying it. But then there's a slight problem that happens as you sort of get older and you're racing against 19-year-olds whose father have unbelievably deep pockets because they want them to be the next Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen. Right. And they don't mind taking you off the track to save like a hundred thousandths of a second. So at that point, I thought, well, this actually doesn't make much sense anymore. I'm just having very expensive track days and somebody's going to put me in a wheelchair. So I thought I'd ease back a bit. So now I'm just doing club racing. Okay. And I own some Ferraris. I race those. But it's more gentleman racing. That's a really interesting story. You're right about that. Porsche basically asked you to race. Yeah, they sort of told me that I'm a liability to other people. <laughs> this is really a bunch of nice guys who bought nice cars hmm. and want to go and do 75 miles an hour on the track because they can't do that on the road. And I want to do 140 miles an hour yeah. on the track and they're in my way. Let's add another digit. Yeah, so I don't see anything overly wrong with flashing my headlights, asking them to move over and things. Certainly not. But Porsche felt it was probably intimidating to people who come out for a nice day. Okay. <laughs> what's one of your favorite automobiles? God, yeah, you know, it's like saying what's your favorite album in a way. I know, I know. That's why I said one of instead of your favorite. I've always had a really strong leaning towards Ferrari. I've owned Ferraris in South Africa for many years. Okay. To me, they are, it's just an unbelievable brand. It is everything, you know, I think Enzo was a very dangerous person, but he was an incredible leader. He set policies and things which were dangerous to say the least, to have four drivers and three cars. That itself sort of sets boundaries. But there's, a, there's just such a thing with Ferrari. I love them. And they were a lot more temperamental than most other cars, but they've overcome all those things now. I only switched to Porsche when I did my experience there in America on Joe's wedding day. And they are solid. They're really nice. You know, in the morning when you go out, it's going to start up. It's all going to be happy. It's not going to do anything radical to you. The Ferrari on the hand is quite likely to give you a really nasty bite when you're not looking at one moment. Mm, Keeps things exciting. I said something the other day, though, which Gina heard, which probably wasn't the right thing to say. That is, my road car is like my wife. It's somebody you'd like to introduce to your parents. It's beautiful. It's glamorous. It has a lot of appeal, charisma, whatever. Mm. But my race car is like my girlfriend because my race car does all those things that my road car doesn't do. Mm-hmm. She heard that and she thought that was a good example, but she wasn't quite in agreement with the way I said it. I wonder why. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually my answer to what you asked me about my favorite car. Yeah. I think a Porsche GT3 Cup car mm. is my all-time favorite car because it is a monster on the track. 
but it will just take it all day long, outperform you. I've probably only ever driven at maximum of eight tenths of what that car could really do. It's just a thrill every moment of every second of being on that racetrack. And looking at that tarmac coming up so fast ahead of you, you're not thinking about Kruger Cand or Elle's next booking or Bob's next book. You're thinking about that bit of tarmac. And it's a really good way of being distracted for a while. Like a Zen experience. Yeah. I don't like it if I'm not in the lead. I have to be in the lead, but that doesn't happen these days so often. Well, I can imagine that that's where you are used to. Have you ever driven it on Nürburgring? I have. That's an amazing track. It is an amazing track. I think it's 29 bends. Wow, okay. The really weird thing about the Nürburgring is that it actually shows up on sat-navs. So you can actually have some sort of warning about what's about to come. Okay. Although it comes really fast because you're going hellish quick. I'm very disturbed that my fastest time ever was 7 minutes 45. That's really good. It is good, but it's not, it's not up there where it should be. <laughs> okay. Give it another go. Give it another go. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you should mention that. So it was just inquired about me doing an event with oh. one of my clients at Nürburgring, which is, sounds to me like an excellent reason to take the Ferrari over there and have wow. a go with that. Have you driven the Ferrari and the Porsche on Nürburgring? I've only actually driven the Porsche on Nürburgring. Okay. I'd like to give the Ferrari a go. I was bored here on Sunday. It was really bloody hot. So I took the Ferrari up into the mountains where it was a lot cooler. And it's the most magnificent roads. And it was rather thrilling to take it around there. I'm sure. I was just wondering how many speeding tickets I got. But actually, <laughs> I got front number plates, so that won't work. More than the number of bends in Nürburgring, I bet. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that you must be busy and thank you once again for speaking to me and my audience today. Is there anything that you'd like to finish with, with all of your leadership experience, like looking back one sentence or one big takeaway that you would pass on to others? I think, yes, there is. And I think it's really true. I think it was maybe Goethe who said it, that whatever it is you believe you can do, do it. It can happen. So don't be put off. Don't think you can't do it. Think you can do it. The bumblebee doesn't know it can't fly. Just give it a go. Start it. Start the road. Mm. Don't sit and wait for it to happen. Start it. Take that step. Wise words. And duly noted. Thank you once again. You know, I look forward to keeping in touch and seeing you manage more iconic talent in more countries around the world. I hope so. Look after yourself. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you have a good day. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon. Eyes on the horizon.